All right, John 17, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26 today. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you have maybe noticed, but things seem a little divided right now in our world, right? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> um, like, I can't remember a time in my life where not just, just society, but even the American church has felt this divided, right? I mean, I know of pastors who've been run out of their churches, congregations that have been together for decades are splitting. I know leaders who have lost their jobs. They've been run out of their ministry by angry donors. And right now there is the potential for multiple splits in some of our biggest denominations. Friends and families have been torn apart. And the littlest things right now are getting politicized and have the potential to label you as either an ally or an enemy. How was Thanksgiving, by the way? <laughs> um, but it's exhausting. It's draining. And it's hurting the witness of the church when, that we've gotten so caught up in all the partisan bickering too. And, and so that brings me to our passage today. Last week, uh, Steve showed us uh, Jesus' final prayer before Jesus leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested and ultimately leading to his execution. We looked at the first two thirds and now we're gonna look at the final third. He began by praying for his disciples and now he turns his eyes to all those who would trust in his name. He prays for you and for me. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is here praying for the church, you, me, and all the believers throughout all of history. He looks ahead into the future. And he knows that the church is going to include all kinds of people, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, the rich, the poor, men, women, children, people of all different ages from every tribe, every culture, speaking every language. And he prays, may they all, all those groups be one. He prays for unity. And we'll see today that unity is not just important, it's crucial. So this idea of unity, of oneness, what, what is it exactly? It's a term that gets thrown around a lot. I wanna start by discussing what it isn't, okay? So what it isn't. The first thing is that unity doesn't mean we always have to agree. We can disagree, whether privately or even publicly, and still have unity with one another. People who say that uh, everyone must agree, you're not allowed to criticize, you're not allowed to think differently. They're just enforcing a superficial, a surface level unity. And when you look at the early church, you see sometimes respectful, but strong disagreement. And phrases like, you know, they're being divisive. We need unity can often be code for everyone needs to agree with us. They need to stop saying things they don't like. There are whole networks and conferences and books built on trying to label groups of other gospel-believing Christians as heretics, all because they disagree on some secondary issues. It's all or nothing for those Christians. 
I mean, the church has enough who oppose her. We don't need to start opposing each other too. Aren't we on the same team seeking the same mission? Now, there are some things we must agree on in order to be united as the church, as a follower of Christ. But the problem is when we add all these other stipulations about what it means to be the right kind of Christian. Leslie Newbigin, the great missiologist wrote, the church is defined by its center, not its boundaries. When we define it by boundaries, we get into all kinds of legalism. Christ is the center. He is what defines the church, not our man-made boundaries. It's okay to disagree about things, but what matters is how you disagree. I get this wrong a lot. I'm working on it, uh, but are you just, you know, trying to win the arguments or are you making sure the person you're talking to feels loved and valued even in the midst of your disagreement. That's the key. First Peter 3.15 says that even when we are defending our beliefs, even in the face of opposition, that it must be done with gentleness and respect. Unity also doesn't mean uniformity. We don't all have to look the same and sound the same. Diversity is not a threat to unity. It's actually a benefit 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So God brought all these different people together. And now skip to verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? He's saying, you know, if we we're all like the same body part, what would the body be? And you just want a giant arm or something. And, and, and so he's saying it's not much. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All these different parts bringing their different unique strengths, how God uniquely made them. And they come together for a common purpose. If you're looking for a church that it's only full of people who look like you, sound like you, have the same background as you, same values, then you're in for one big dysfunctional body because you've made it all about you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And this goes beyond ethnicity, gender, and social class, but also to theological camps and denominations. Now, this is, this is my opinion, but I think we need Christians different from us. Pentecostals, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Black Protestants, Anglicans, Egalitarians, Complementarians, Baptists, Calvinists, Arminians, Pre-Tribbers, Amillennials, and even those pesky non-denominationals. They all have something to teach us about God and his heart. Their existence doesn't undermine our unity if we don't forget the true center. And lastly, unity is not the end goal. It's a means to a greater purpose, glorifying Christ and reaching the world with the gospel. I mean, if unity was so great unto itself, then God wouldn't have messed with the people of Babel, right? They were united. 
but they weren't united for the common cause of glorifying God. When we make unity the ultimate goal, it goes hand in hand with idolizing something else above Christ, whether it be our organization, a leader, a political goal, financial security, or something else. And because we have an idol, we decide we need to protect it. And the biggest threat to our security is someone stepping out of line and calling out that idol. So we say unity. The worst version of this is when victims of abuse in the church speak out or someone calls out blatant sin in the church and they get labeled as divisive. They are silenced with calls for unity. But for those leaders, their unity is in service of something else other than Christ. And ironically, it actually undermines true unity when we cover up sin and we refuse to deal with it head on. It's more divisive to pretend the rot isn't there. So that's what unity isn't. Now, what's the unity we should strive for? Instead, Jesus says it in our passage today, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And the first thing I want to point out is the, the final phrase, that they also may be in us. This phrase of being in God or in Christ is a picture of what happens when we've placed our faith in him. John Calvin writes, we infer that we are one with the son of God because he imparts to us his life and all the blessings which he has received from the father. We belong to Christ when we've placed our faith in him so closely that it's as if we have united with him, his power resurrecting our dead hearts with new life. Jesus mentions our unity with Christ here because it's the only reason the church can be one. Our unity with each other begins because of the gospel. What does that actually look like though? Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you father are in me and I in you. He's saying here that the unity within the church should look like the relationship between Jesus and the father. To fully understand this, I want to give a quick review of Trinitarian theology, all right? So as Christians, we believe that there's only one true God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One ultimate divine being. But at the same time, the Bible shows us that God is made up of three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully divine, eternal, almighty, and yet Each is distinct, but at the same time, the persons are perfectly united, so tightly unified that they are one being. That's the Trinity. Now, what is the nature of the relationship within the Godhead, within these three persons? It's the fullest expression of love imaginable. It's perfect, constant, selfless generosity. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Before the dawn of time, before humans were created, God was still love. Now, where was that love directed when, you know, us humans weren't there? Where was he loving? Within the persons of the Trinity, each glorifying in and delighting in the other. 
It's a theme we've seen throughout our whole study of the gospel of John. Even in this chapter in verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And we see it in verse 22, the glory that you have given me. To glorify something, it means to declare the greatness of that thing. And so each person of the Trinity, they're fully deserving of glory, right? They're great. And yet they do not receive glory just to receive it, but instead to pass that glory onto another person to declare how great that person in the Trinity is. It's perfect, selfless generosity. That's how the persons within the Trinity relate to one another. And Jesus says that he desires for the church to do likewise. True unity is marked by selfless generosity. It's a community of people empowered by the life of Christ first, who then selflessly, generously, sacrificially go above and beyond in their lavish care for one another. The Apostle Paul dives even deeper into what this kind of unity looks like. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, be united, be one. How? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You hear that? I mean, this kind of unity, this goes way beyond just being nice to each other and restoring civility, learning to agree to disagree. Those aren't bad things, but they're like the bare minimum. The bar is like down here. Congratulations. Uh, But Paul says, we're not just to settle for nice manners. We have a responsibility, an obligation to actively care for our fellow follower in Christ. And I say actively on purpose. This isn't a passive thing uh, where we just react. He says, look to the interests of others. Seek how you can meet their needs. Count their needs more significant than your own. And this isn't just about people we like, the people that don't annoy us the people we agree with, or even just the Christians we know, this is supposed to be our posture toward the whole body of Christ. Every Christian we come in contact with, whether in ecclesia or not, from our country or not, whether they deserve it or not, we are to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ like this. Treat them like family. We don't make our family deserve our love, earn our love. We give it to them because they're family. You want to be countercultural? That is countercultural more than any other culture war topic you can think of. The world right now says that you are to look to your own interests first. My rights, my feelings, my comfort. But Paul says the follower of Christ is to live a different way a generous, selfless way. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, imagine if we truly lived this way, voted that way, spent our money that way, chose our jobs that way, worked that way. What kind of a community would that look like? On the day of Pentecost, 
And when the church was birthed and thousands believed in the gospel in one day, the believers, they kind of had a problem. All these people had traveled from all over the Roman empire to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And now they didn't wanna leave because of the miraculous birth of the church, but they didn't have enough supplies and shelter for an indefinite stay. So what do you, what do, you do? Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So they're united again. What did it look like? And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Of the early church, Tim Keller says, there was a drastic open-handedness. The gospel had changed everyone's hearts toward their possessions. So they shared their homes and they shared their money. And they shared their space. They shared everything. Now, am I saying we're commanded to do exactly the same thing? No, but it's a description of what happened. And it would be good to ask ourselves why we're so quick to want to let ourselves off the hook and ignore this example. Is it possible that faithfulness would say, stop trying to hold so tightly to your stuff? If we truly want unity, maybe we need to pray about how we can use our houses, our cars, our property, our wealth, our time, our talents, all to bless fellow believers. I mean, do we want to live like the triune God and say, what is mine is yours? Or do we just want to be comfortable? This kind of relationship is only possible when you share life together. Close proximity. You've got to be rooted in a church and in a community, committing to it. And it doesn't just happen on Sundays. It, it, it's, you know, it doesn't just happen through streaming someone else's services from across the country. It takes time, it takes effort, and it takes vulnerability. It takes work. And I know it's easy to just individualize our faith and practice. That's just me and Jesus, especially because you know, people can be annoying sometimes. I just wanted to be me and Jesus, but God has a bigger vision for our faith. Romans 12, five. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you're a part of the body of Christ and you are, if you believe in Christ, you belong to each other. You can't be out here only sort of a part of the church, committing to nothing, thinking you're just this little Christian island of self that, you know, I fish with my buddies on weekends. That's church enough. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you belong to God and you belong to the church. Meaning we have obligations, duties toward one another. Society, it tells you that you belong only to yourself. But what we see in the Bible is a rejection of the individualist lifestyle. We are a part of a whole. We are not a whole unto ourselves. Our actions affect the people around us. And the church can only live as one when it sees itself as a collective, not just a, as a jumble of individuals on their own journey who happen to gather together in a movie theater to sing songs. This means that it shouldn't be so easy for us to leave a local church. 
And I can say that, I don't work here. My livelihood is not dependent on you guys staying. (laughs) A church is a family. And sometimes family is gonna tick you off, offend you, disrespect you. But at the end of the day, you're still family, right? Don't just pick another family because this one didn't work out. It's like switching cell phone providers or something. You know, this package is better and this product is better. Church shouldn't be like that. It's a family. And persevering with family, it it means that sometimes it's not going to be exactly how you want it. Things are gonna get awkward and uncomfortable. There might be gossip, there will be wounds, but part of living out the gospel is learning how to bring grace and repentance and mercy into our relationships. There's grace for you from Christ. Do we have grace for others? Now, there are legitimate reasons to leave a church and I wish I had time to get into them, but such a massive decision where you're going to sever roots, it should take time to get to such a conclusion. It should take tons of prayer, tons of counsel, and above all, tons of grace. If you think about it, much of how church functions is to cultivate unity in us baptisms, baby dedications, singing praises, weddings, funerals, corporate prayer, but perhaps nothing represents our union with each other through our union with Christ better than communion. The term communion comes from the Latin word communio, meaning fellowship, mutual participation, sharing. And in communion, we together, we partake of the bread and of the cup representing the body and the blood of Christ that was broken and spilled for your sins on the cross. And when you partake of it, the food becomes a part of you, nourishing you, giving you life, much like Christ does for you. And we do this together as a church, feasting with the church at the Lord's table, like it's one big family meal, like, like Thanksgiving. And in fact, the early church would often combine communion with a huge celebratory meal called a love feast. And as you take communion, there are millions of other believers around the world who are today also partaking of the bread and of the cup. And you are joining with them, the church universal, all of us together, declaring our union with Christ and our union with each other, that we are one body. Communion isn't an individual act. It's a collective act and it connects us to Christ and to every Christian who ever lived as if they're all sitting at the table with us. So why all this talk about oneness, reflecting the Trinity sounds important, but is there any other function? Jesus tells us back in John 17, verse 21. Be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying that believers would treat each other in such a way that people can't help but want to be a part of such a community. It's a crucial component of the mission of Jesus that he's given to us, not just to preach the gospel, but to live it out with our lives. Thomas Aquinas wrote, nothing shows the truth of the gospel better than the charity of those who believe. Why? We're modeling the radical, selfless generosity of our God. We're being a picture of the gospel to the world. 
The early church, it shocked the Roman Empire, not just because of its message, but by how it lived. The church cared for the sick when disease ravaged cities. It adopted abandoned babies. It provided for the poor and disabled. It gathered under one roof people who would never, ever join together in any other context. And they did it all, by the way, while under extreme persecution. And that's why the church grew like wildfire. No one had ever seen anything like this. And at Ecclesia, we've seen some atheists and agnostics attend this church for a long time before ever getting saved. They were won over to the community first before they were won over to Christ. They saw the love in you guys. They saw Christ's love in you guys. A loving community is compelling. It's what people are longing for. And people are so lonely right now. Even before the lockdowns, modernity is constantly pushing us farther and farther apart through technology, through political polarization. And yet we are still wired to need community. We're longing for a place where we belong, where we're accepted, no matter how messed up we are. Can I be a part of this? Can I be known and loved and found? We were created for community. And so Christ is saying, here it is. Here's the community you were created for. You can't do it alone. And what are we doing when we live in this way, in this uh, reflecting the Trinity? We're reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ when we do this. We're declaring to the world how great he truly is. Verse 22 the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory he's talking about here is the glory that the father gives to Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross. It's the name above every other name as Philippians 2 says. And the amazing thing is that Jesus says he is passing that glory to us. Now, what does he mean by that? He's giving us the glory of the gospel so we can show it to the world. It's like the baton race at the beginning of the Olympics, you know, where they pass the torch and they relay around the world until ultimately lights that big old fire at the opening ceremonies. In that same way, we are so united to Christ that we get to continue the race for him. He gives us the fire to carry with us the glory of his radical, sacrificial generosity in the cross to then display that love to the world. I mean, guys, this is how generous Jesus is to us, that he invites us, us, lowly, sinful human beings, so many problems, and he invites us into something glorious. And he calls us to share that glory with the world. What this means though, is that the biggest hindrance to the furtherance of the gospel isn't out there in culture. It's in here. It's how we treat each other. When we say the cross of Christ transforms you, believe, but then we go on being just as spiteful and angry as the world, sometimes worse, then we're actively undermining the message, discrediting the gospel. And unfortunately, it's painfully obvious that we're not good at this. And it's probably an understatement, 
We've got factions, competition between churches, infighting, politics, NDAs, hypocrisy, and cover-ups of glaring sin. It's hard to watch. It's frustrating. And I've done my fair share to mess things up. We all have. I know there's a lot of people who have been hurt by churches, burned by fellow Christians. And the pain is real and the grief is real. And then of course you think about the church throughout history, right? There have been denominations that literally went to war and killed each other. So what do we do with all of that? Is just Jesus' prayer just going unanswered? God's like, yeah, no, Jesus. No, God is not denying Jesus's request. He's just answering it in a slightly different way than how we would like him to. We want perfect unity right now, please. But Jesus says at the end of verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I hate to break it to you, but we're not gonna have perfect unity in this life. The early church, for as radical as they were, they were still very dysfunctional. I mean, a large portion of the New Testament is written to address rampant division, ethnic strife, and horrible factionalism in the church. So they couldn't do it. I mean, man. So are we just destined to be like hypocrites for the rest of our lives? <laughs> I mean, kinda. But that's part of what it means to be still be sinners. Like, we're human. But also, that's where Grace and repentance comes in. Grace for those who sin against you and repentance when you sin against others. That's what our oneness is actually about, isn't it? It's, it's not being perfect. It's living out the gospel, the, the grace of the gospel, the mercy of the gospel, the repentance that the gospel calls us to. We're still going to fail. But thankfully, it's not all on us. That's why he's united to us to make up for our failures. The life of Christ is in the church, making us little by little more like him, that they may become perfectly one. He's speaking in the future tense here, looking forward to a process that is to come for us. And it's a passive verb, which means, we're not perfecting ourselves. Someone else is doing it to us. And it implies this idea of completion, of finished work. Jesus is in, the, is in the process of perfecting us in his generous love. And in this prayer, he's looking forward to the day where that transformation will one day be complete. And this is how we can be a witness to the world. Not that we never sin against each other, but that we can repent of our sin and forgive all in spite of our sin. We model the gospel. And this is why attempts to cover up sin in the church for the sake of unity are misguided. It's not real unity. Oneness, real oneness is facing those sins head on, dealing with it, you don't win people to the gospel through forced unity and cheap grace. 
People will rightly call that out as fake and undesirable. You win people to the gospel by living out the gospel. Repentance when corrected, joy in the midst of suffering, forgiveness and grace when wronged. Jesus continues, verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here, Jesus continues to show his great generous love for us and his desire for us to join him in eternity, for us to see him in his fullest glory. He loves us so much that he can't wait for that day. He's saying, I I want it to happen now, that, that, that day when we get to dwell with him face to face, first in heaven after death, and then in the new creation when Jesus returns to fully rule as the king. He wants us there to be able to fully participate in his glory. He's still being so generous to us. He's still offering us so much more than we deserve. He's so generous that, that we will get to fully experience the life of Christ to such an extent that our bodies will be glorified like his, no longer marred by sin, death, and sickness. 1 John 3, 2, what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, his resurrected body, because we shall see him as he is. He's glorious and we'll see that. We'll get to spend eternity in these new bodies, basking in the warm glow of his glory. That is the kind of lavish generosity Jesus is ready to bestow upon us. And here's the thing. We'll get to experience all of this together as the church, not separately as individuals. Christ is coming for his bride, the church, all of us as one. How does Revelation 21 describe this coming eternal new creation where God will dwell with us and we will see his glory? How how does uh, John describe it? As a city. Not as separate planets, you know, that we just get to enjoy all by ourselves or some giant plot of land with no soul in sight. A city, a thriving, bustling, joy-filled community where it says the glory of the nations will come and be united at the tree of life. That's our future reality. No matter how bad things get in the here and the now, we can still hold on to that reality and hope, perfect peace, perfect unity. We're gonna be spending a lot of time together, guys. And because that's our future reality, we should live in it here and now, bringing a small, small foretaste of the coming kingdom right here. He ends his prayer starting in verse 25. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. It all comes back to God's great love for his son, that his son then passes down to us, that we then pass to those around us. His generous, self-sacrificial, mind-blowing love that continually goes above and beyond what we could ever imagine. May we show that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ as he little by little makes us into one. Amen.